Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hello, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This week's episode deals with a very grisly, almost barbaric death. A woman is killed in broad daylight on the steps of her own home. Everyone in her neighborhood thought they knew who killed her. So how is it still an unsolved murder? And how is this murder tied to another murder that happened just shortly after in St. Augustine, Florida? You'll find out this week when I explore the death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. So before we go into the death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley, I think it's good to know what she was like because Athalia was quite a powerhouse. I got most of my information about this case from a book called Murder in St. Augustine by Elizabeth Randall. That's not the most well-known case, so Randall does a really great job of researching it. Athalia was not a native of St. Augustine, Florida. Her exact birthplace is kind of disputed. Her birth certificate said Toledo, Ohio, but her mother Margarita is from a place called the Isle of Pines, which is off the coast of Cuba. Now at that time, it was pretty easy to get a flight from the United States to Cuba since this was pre-Castro. Margarita Gardner met a man named Charles Franklin Fetter, a young pharmacist from Kansas on the Isle of Pines and she knocked this guy off his feet. She was very smart, and she wanted to be a writer, which was 
a perfect match for the intelligent Charles. This guy was really smart. He had just given the Isle of Pines its first electric lights and telephone line. So they were this perfect match. And this romance ended in marriage on July 5th in 1916. And Othelia Ann Fetter came just 13 months later. At this time, there was trouble over whether the Isle belonged to Cuba or America. Margarita had even traveled to Washington, D.C. to lobby for it to be part of the U.S. But due to very anti-American sentiment in the Isle, the family had to flee for Jacksonville, Florida. And shortly after graduation, Athalia married a man named Dick Hyman and divorced shortly after. She and her younger sister Geraldine then moved to New York City, and they decided to go by the name Ponsell, don't really know why. Now, don't get the idea that these two were scrounging around in the city because this family was pretty well off even after Charles's death in 1937. Athalia, who was very thin, tall, and blonde, began modeling in various ad campaigns. And she was a very hot item in society. I guess she was even rumored to have dated a very young Joseph Kennedy Jr. And she was written about in Gaza columns by the famous columnist Dorothy Calgallon. After her modeling days ended, Othelia then moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and that's where she met a man named Charles H. Bloom, who was an insurance and real estate agent. She then began to study real estate and sell it herself, but stopped to become a caretaker for her ailing mother, Margarita. That marriage ended in divorce, but it was just a little bump on the road for Othelia. In Jacksonville, she was very active in groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution and Americans of Royal Descent, as well as running for public office. And in between doing these things, she just happened to patent a device and write a book. And as well as being well ahead of her time, Athalia was not afraid to speak her mind, which I'm sure got her labeled a bitch. Women were taught to be demure at that time, and Athalia was the exact opposite. She was very headstrong and independent. When she moved to a home in St. Augustine on Marine Street with her mother, she started making enemies right away with her neighbors. Athalia hadn't been there long. She was just recently married to a man named James Lindsley, a real estate agent, but they kept separate residences. She was still caring for her mother. So these houses on Marine Street were apparently pretty close together. And her neighbors didn't like the noise from Athalia's seven dogs. Her neighbors on each side, which were the McCormicks and the Stanfords, went so far as to file a public complaint. But Athalia was too busy caring for her ailing mother to care about all this. However, her neighbor, Rosemary McCormick, wouldn't let up and initiated a warrant for her arrest. And this is just three days after Margarita died. Now, this may have been when this feud really began and really amped up. Athalia was mentally exhausted from years of caring for her sick mother. And there was also speculation that she herself may have been ill with something. Her sister Geraldine remembers finding a bloody tampon in her trash after her sister used the restroom. Now, at this time... Athalia was 56, and she was well past menopause, which means she could have had something like cervical cancer or some other horrendous problem. 
So all this kind of sets her state of mind. Now consider it. You've just lost your mother, who you've been caring for for years, and you may not be feeling so well yourself. Now you have your neighbors, instead of being consoling, are feuding with you constantly. Some people might break. Instead, Athalia went on a warpath. If they didn't like her dogs, then she didn't like the trees on a property line with the Stanfords. She cut them both down, which really angered the family. Athalia then set her sights right on Alan Stanford. She went straight to the St. Augustine record, demanding somebody help her, quote, dig up information on Alan Stanford. Managing editor Patrick Lynn recalls her walking in, all tall, gorgeous, and very intimidating. Despite his refusal to help her, she somehow still got her dirt. 48-year-old Alan Stanford was a county manager with many employees working under him. There was a very high turnover rate due to his firings, so it's clear that Athalia used some of those guys that got fired to help her with her plight against Alan. Athalia often attended commission meetings to rail about everything from Alan's incompetence at his position to his lack of credentials. See, to get this position, you had to qualify as a professional engineer. And Alan had failed the test, a fact which he kept to himself. And even though many people had it out for Alan, Athalia and Alan's feud took center stage. Alan was harboring a seething hatred for his neighbor. On one occasion, Athalia had some friends over to her home. She stood in her driveway saying goodbye as they all left. Alan pulled up in his car, looked over at her and said, You're a vicious, evil woman. One day I'm going to fix you. Tensions ran even higher after one commission meeting in October of 1973. There, Athalia publicly complained about Stanford's $20,000 salary and his lack of job credentials, saying, quote, you're pouring money down a rat hole to his employers. She also pointed out how Alan was getting paid way more than the others he worked with, which I'm sure made a lot of people angry. She also mentioned how he threatened her life and put sugar in a gas tank. The board chairman knew about the issues between Alan and Athalia and just brushed it off as this neighborly dispute. But on January 23, 1974, Alan received two unexpected visitors at his office. They were from the Florida Department of Professional and Occupational Regulations, and they were there at Athalia's request. She had written a letter to the executive director reading, quote, We feel it our duty to inform of the apparent malpractice of a man who appears to be passing himself off as a certified engineer. He signs county legal documents as the county engineer, when as far as we can ascertain, he has no engineering degree in any field. So an official investigation was underway to see if Allen was in violation of Florida statutes. And even though he'd scheduled to retake the test in April, it didn't seem like these troubles were going to wait. Athalia was gunning for him. She was hellbent on getting Alan fired. The next day, the state investigators were going to officially speak with Athalia at her home. 
but that interview never came. When police were called to 124 Marine Street for a, quote, domestic going on, that was not what they found when they arrived. Instead, they found the lifeless, bloody body of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley on her steps. Inside the kitchen, they found her groceries still sitting on the kitchen floor, and her keys were still hung in the door. They went next door to the McCormicks to see if they saw or heard anything. Their 18-year-old son, Locke, was home from college, and he ended up being possibly the only eyewitness to Athalia's murder. Locke sat around 6.10 p.m. He was sitting on the couch watching TV when he heard this loud snapping sound, almost like hands clapping. When he looked out the window, he saw the back of a man wearing a white dress shirt and dark pants who was facing Athalia's house. When he ran out to investigate, he saw the man's shoulder moving as if he were swinging an object. The man stopped his actions and headed out of sight. When Locke saw Athalia's bloody body, he yelled for his mother to call for help. Patty Stanford recalled hearing screams when she was washing her dishes in the sink. At first, she thought somebody might have gotten run over by a car because it was a very busy street. She ran out to see what happened. Locke couldn't recall if the man held anything in his hands and didn't quite see his face. He did recall that he was white, was short brown, and gray hair. Although the scene was greatly compromised by onlookers and neighbors, police did notice a trail of blood that went over the wall that separated the Lindsley and Stanford homes. There was blood that also led to the south side of the home. And man, this next thing is absolutely crazy. Police officers then ordered ambulance workers to hose down the blood leading to the front door and steps, thus destroying the evidence. Now, some think that this was a deliberate act to protect her husband, James Lindsley, a former mayor and county commissioner, who was pretty close to the sheriff. But it's hard to say whether this was a deliberate action or just incompetence. You know, until then, the force was pretty much only used to break up scuffles and bars, nothing like murder. They were so inexperienced with murder scenes that they had to contact Jacksonville to get help from their crime scene unit. Patty Stanford said she wished she'd never gone out to see what the commotion was. And what she saw was Athalia sprawled on her front steps, eyes wide open. As Randall wrote... Her head was attached by a sinewy thread to the rest of her body and rested on the bottom step of the porch. Her carotid artery had been severed, so blood was everywhere. Athalia's dress was hiked up and one shoe was off. She had lost some fingers due to throwing up her hands as a defense against the attack. This was an absolutely grisly scene, and it was so bloody that at first neighbors thought that she'd fallen out a window. At the time, Athalia and James lived separately. James lived on Lou Street. Athalia was still pretty much residing in the other house. And since they'd recently gotten married, she spent most of her time at Marine Street until they could get the house sold. He'd just gotten home from work that day and was expecting his wife to be joining him shortly after. She said all she had to do was go and pack some groceries, feed the dogs, and she'd be right over and when she didn't arrive, he called the house, but there was no answer. 
Then he got a call from a neighbor telling him he needed to get to the house on Marine Street, that something really bad had happened. It was determined that the weapon used to kill Athalia was a machete due to the depths of the cuts. And according to Captain Williams, these cuts were clean and long like a razor. Due to it being St. Augustine, many people owned machetes. They used them to cut the brush and vines that grew in the area. So this was a huge list of people that could have owned a machete to kill someone. James Lindsley, being the husband, was, of course, the first suspect. And I'm sure having the nickname of Jinx didn't help. James was something of an alcoholic who was at the wheel of a car involved in an accident with his first wife, Lillian. Her neck was broken in the crash, and she died. James and Athalia didn't know each other very long before they were married, and there appeared to be some issues between the newlyweds. Athalia had told her sister that her new husband was a leech and a liar. Athalia even listed her sister as the beneficiary rather than James. Despite all this, though, there was affection witnessed between the two. And in the end, James's alibi was pretty airtight. He'd been at his real estate office before heading to a drugstore. And then after that, he stopped at another store before heading home. And a neighbor distinctly remembers seeing James arrive home at 6.05 p.m. In addition, James passed a polygraph test. Even though rumors flew and a crazy list of suspects were mentioned, it still led back to the man wearing the white t-shirt and dark pants. 20-year-old Adele McLaughlin had been riding her bike down Marine Street and recalled seeing a man in his late 50s opening the gate to the driveway of Athalia's home around 4.30 the day of the murder. Probably the most damning were the words uttered by Locke McCormick. Mr. Stanford was hitting Miss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Ponzel. Alan had motive to kill Athalia for sure. She was actively trying to get him fired from his job. Not only would it be bad financially to lose his job, but to lose it to his enemy, who was a woman, made it even worse. Many described Alan as quiet, but he was known to have something of a temper, too. Apparently, he once destroyed a sensor on a compressor after several co-workers kept arguing about the temperature in the office. Alan had a very easy life growing up. His family came from South Carolina, and he had a very nice home. 
He worked in selling aircraft parts before applying for the job as county manager in St. Augustine. He had a really nice family, consisting of his wife, Patty, and their three daughters, Sherry, Patricia, and Annette. Just like Athalia wanted dirt on Alan, he, in turn, wanted dirt on her. He had gone to Sheriff Garrett and resident Nancy Powell trying to dig something up on Athalia. The days leading up to the murder were very stressful for Alan. He was being investigated, and several employees, along with Athalia, were gunning for his dismissal. He was on the verge of losing his job. Now, this was a man who had never known unemployment or the disgrace of losing a job. I'm sure the thought that Athalia winning and being the cause of his job loss really got to him. And remember, she was due to speak with the investigators the very next day about Alan. She was very vocal about her dislike of Alan, and she was a very persuasive woman. So it did not look good for him. Police were also convinced that Patty Stanford had witnessed the slaying, yet was lying to protect her husband. Patty was in the kitchen at the time of the murder, and from her window above the sink, she could have seen right into Athalia's front yard. Now, she admittedly heard screams. Wouldn't she had instinctively looked through that window? She wouldn't have to run outside to see what was happening. Plus, her story changed from its original state. First, she said she was fixing dinner when she heard the screams. Then, she said the family was finished with dinner when she heard them. At a third interview, she claimed she was doing the dishes when she heard the screams. She claimed she didn't know what her husband wore that day, but his co-workers were positive it was a white shirt and dark pants. Now, your co-workers can remember what you're wearing, but your wife doesn't. To Detective Nick Lowe, who interviewed her, she seemed very flustered and irritated. Even weirder was how Patty allowed her daughters, Patricia and Little Annette, outside to the yard right after the murder. I mean, think about this. If you knew your neighbor was just murdered, would you let your loved ones outside? Patricia gave very inconsistent accounts of things, too. Several times, she changed the timeline of when her mother picked her up and her friend from the tennis court. Then she also flip-flopped on her account of whether her father was at home when they got back. Plus, she made this really bizarre statement that she didn't discuss her parents' possible involvement because I'd seen what happened out that window, but I didn't discuss it with anyone. Previously, she said she didn't see anything. According to his testimony, Alan had gotten home between 5 and 5.15 p.m. He said he'd seen Athalia out there watering her plants. Now that's odd because at that time, she most likely wasn't even home. But let's play devil's advocate and say Athalia was home. Would she really be watering her plants outside and leave her keys in the door and her groceries on the floor? This seems really unlikely. Alan then claims that he left around 5.30 to go back to the office, but his alibi couldn't be confirmed. A search warrant was issued for the Stanford residence, but neither the machete nor any bloody clothing was found. There was a missing machete that was loaned to Alan from a county employee, Freddie Huddall. Freddie was positive that it had not been returned, even though Alan claimed that he did. Now let's get into the blood evidence. 
Blood drops were found in several places, including outside Allen's garage and blood on the wall leading to the Stanford's yard. There was also blood found on a sign and signpost near Allen's office. In addition, there were some very mysterious blood drops found in Allen's car and on a steering wheel. However, there wasn't enough substantial evidence against him. And it wasn't until Sheriff Garrett offered a reward that this murder weapon was even found. A man named Dewey Lee decided the dump by the marsh was a potential dumping ground for something like that, so he began looking there for it. Indeed, Dewey found a machete, blade up in the dirt, by what looked like a towel. And inside the towel was a watch, dark pants, and a white shirt which were all stained with blood. Also found was a baby diaper, a black belt, and a tie. The next day, a shoe was found. It was enough to charge Allen with murder. He was also suspended from his job. Things went in Allen's favor, though. His lawyer was granted a change of venue, plus evidence seized in the search warrant, like blood evidence, was declared to be found as a result of an unlawful search and seizure. His lawyer was also successful in getting the trial delayed. Now, I must talk about Francis Bemis because this gets pretty wild. When Athalia was murdered, Francis made the very odd statement to the newspaper that, I think St. Augustine is the safest place I've ever lived in. I go out walking at night and will continue to do so. So someone has been killed in your neighborhood. Do you really go out walking at night? You might if you think you already know who the killer is. Many people say Frances Bemis pointed the finger at Alan. She even told another neighbor that she knew a man who knew something and was trying to get him to go to the police. Frances was a writer who sometimes submitted pieces to the local paper but she wasn't subpoenaed for testimony in the trial, so what she knew at this point was possibly just speculation. Crazy thing is, we'll never know, because on November 3rd, 1974, while on her nightly walk, Frances was murdered. Her body was found the next day in a lot. Her skull was smashed so severely that her brains were visible. This one's just almost as equally brutal as Athalia's murder. One eye was gouged out. She was severely beaten and possibly strangled by part of her dress. And it appears she was also set on fire, you know, most likely to hide any evidence. The body was in such a state that dental records had to be used to identify her body. Some evidence was found at the scene, a scrap of denim and a button not belonging to Francis. Of course, after what happened, Alan Stanford was a suspect. He was never charged with anything, though. And neither was another suspect on the FBI list, a man named Gerald Austin. Not sure why he was suspected. There's not much out there about it, but he was never charged either. Throughout her life, Frances had a variety of jobs, from fashion director, public relations specialist, radio producer, and newspaper writer. In 1943, she served in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. After the war, she did a lot of charity work, as well as continuing her writing. She was a very staunch civil rights advocate who marched and protested in the early 60s. 
a lot of people in St. Augustine seem to think that Frances was working on a story or maybe a book about her fellow Marine Street neighbor, Athalia. Some notes were found with the heading Murder on Marine Street, but it didn't appear that Frances was actually writing a book. These were just notes that might have been for her friend Nancy Powell, who later wrote a fiction book based on the murder of Athalia. Frances Bemis's murder has also gone unsolved to this day. This lady was pretty kick-ass. She donated her body to the College of Medicine. She left all kinds of money to the local library on the condition that they purchase books by black authors. Other benefactors were the local college to use as a scholarship fund and the local art center. She sounded pretty cool, and that's also another shame, another pretty awesome lady that got murdered. Allen's trial finally began in January of 1975. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know I'm not a fan of trial details, so I hope you don't mind if I kind of glaze over that part. It's always kind of boring to me. I like Law & Order, the TV show, but when it got to Sam Waterston and everything, I kind of just zoned out. The gathering of all the evidence was heavily called into question. Alan was found not guilty of murder. I really liked Elizabeth Randall's book because she told what happened to all the players in the saga. Rosemary McCormick died in 2009 and is buried beside her husband, Colonel McCormick, who passed away in 1987. Locke McCormick moved from Jacksonville and now works in car sales. James Lindsley moved from St. Augustine and never remarried. He split the sale of Thalia's home with her sister, Geraldine. He died in 1987. The Stanfords moved in 1975, eventually settling in South Carolina. Patty passed away from cancer in 1987. In an interesting twist, she left her estate to her daughters and didn't include Alan at all. After Patty's death, Alan fired her lawyer and trustee. For whatever reason, that lawyer asked the court to remove his name as the attorney of record. And because of that, Alan was able to become the executor and trustee. He blew through a ton of money before the daughters hired a lawyer. Power of attorney was taken from Alan, and the money was then split between the sisters. Alan remarried a woman 13 years his junior before dying of cancer in 2006. That was the murder of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. It's really crazy and still unsolved to this day. Now, had this been in a bigger city, Alan might have been convicted. I kind of feel like because it was a smaller place and the police didn't have much experience dealing with murder that it wasn't handled very well. Things like that sidewalk being hosed down should not have happened. I mean, in the end, Alan looks pretty guilty, but, you know, who can really say? And I'm not sure whether he had anything to do with Francis Bemis's murder. That one's really weird. I mean, that kind of sounds like it might have been someone else entirely. Regardless, that whole case is fascinating. So I can't remember who I welcomed most recently to the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. So I might mention someone who was previously mentioned in the last episode. I really want to welcome Kaylee, Melissa, Monique, and George. And I want to give a really special welcome to Emily. She's freaking cool as hell. She's from my hometown, 
and we've become pretty fast friends. If you'd like to join the group, we'd love to have you. You can find the podcast on Twitter, too. I'm not as active on there as I should be. I'm also on Instagram where I'm a little bit better. Um, I want to say this week, keep a lot of people in your thoughts who are podcasters. Um, Erica from Southern Fried True Crime just lost her mom. Not too long ago, um, Nina from Already Gone, her father passed away. And this is really the really most heartbreaking one. Uh, There's a podcast called Dirty Bits. And Tawny hosts it. She's really awesome. She's the sweetest person. I was a huge fan of this podcast, and I've interacted a little bit with her online. She's always been extremely supportive and helpful and the sweetest. And her husband, George, passed away. He was really young, and they were really in love. And it's really heartbreaking. Um, you know, so give her your support. She's really holding up well, and it's amazing. She's a freaking amazing woman. So keep all these people in your thoughts. Just remember everyone that you listen to that does these podcasts, everybody does it on their free time. Yeah, maybe there's some ads we get paid. It's not a lot, man, let me tell you. And people put their heart and soul into these podcasts. Those are three of my favorite podcasts, by the way. So to think of these people hurting, it just really sucks. So, man, keep them in your thoughts. Um, just want to say, sorry, I've been absent. I've been really ill. I've had the death plague, whatever's going on. Me and my son have been very sick. And it made me see the importance of kind of getting ahead on podcasts. It's funny because I talked to Marissa from The Vanished over the summer at the True Crime Podcast Festival kind of asking her what she does, what advice she would give. She, I know, gets ahead and, you know, has a lot of podcasts already recorded. This is obviously going to be my New Year's resolution for the podcast. I declare I'm never going to get behind again, and we're never going to go weeks without a podcast. So that's, you guys got to hold me to this. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening and sticking with me, and I'll catch you next week.